This interview was recorded on April 22nd, 2020. Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Alfredo Desa. Based in Atlanta, Alfredo is a software engineer, open source developer, photographer, and former Olympic athlete. A popular speaker, he has given talks on a range of subjects from professional sports to personal development and open source software. You can follow him on Twitter at Alfredo Desa, and that's with a Z, and check out his website at alfredodesa.com. Along with his colleague, Noah Gift, Alfredo is co-author of a couple of LeanPub books, including Minimal Python, Testing in Python, and Python command line tools. In this interview, we're going to talk about Alfredo's background and career, professional interests, his books, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience as an author. So thank you, Alfredo, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Len, thank you so much for having me. I'm pretty excited to be here and, uh, and chatting about all these interesting things that are going on. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll get to some of the things that are going on in a little bit. Uh, but first, um, <laughs> I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. And you've got a couple, I think. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, well, let's start with the technology stuff, uh, where you grew up and, and how you first became interested in computers and technology. Well, um, it's, I, I think we, I could write a book about that. <laughs> it's just uh, very extensive, but, uh, let me, let me try to summarize it in a, in a kind of like an interesting way. Um, so I was born in Peru, um, and then I lived there until I was, uh, 25, uh, that's right around when I, when I got married, my wife is from Peru and then, um, uh, but uh, I, I never went, never went to, well, I did go to college, but I, I was there for just a, uh, a few months. Um, it was really hard for me. Uh, I was, <clears throat> I was a professional athlete back in Peru. Uh, I was, I was a track and field athlete. I did the high jump and, uh, consumed most of my life and I did it, uh, very intense, intensely for, um, for about 15 years. So I started when I was, uh, 10 years old, like training, uh, working out, uh, uh, every day. So Saturday, Sundays, New Year's Eve, Christmas, birthdays, and then, um, and then slowly intensifying to working out, uh, between uh, 12 to 17, 18 times per week. So every, almost every day, uh, twice a day and sometimes three times a day. So pretty, pretty hard. And then I went to college and college was not really making uh, things work for me. And after a few months, I just decided to, to, to quit and concentrate in sports. And it all basically kind of like ended when I went to the Olympic games, I did uh, pretty bad in the Olympics, uh, didn't do too well. And then I came back, got married and, um, and decided to come to the U S and we, it was, it was really brutal, uh, coming to the U S, uh, back in Peru, we had the support of the family and, and, and tons of people that, that knew me and, uh, that made things go pretty easy. But, uh, here in the U S, uh, we, we were staying, we were staying with my sister-in-law and it was, it was a very small, uh, single bedroom basement. Um, and, uh, and, and just trying to, to make ends meet and, and slowly but surely trying to find things that uh, would generate income. So I started as a personal trainer for a little while. That was also brutal because, um, I didn't have all of the certifications that, uh, uh, James were asking me and like, it was, it was really hard along the way. 
I've always liked computers. I was always like enticed by them. Um, in, in my growing up in my house, we always had a computer. Uh, I remember having an Apple, uh, the Apple II, and doing some basic. My older brother knew that, and it's like I had no idea. He's like, "Oh, look at stuff that I can write, and and how can I make the computer do this?" And it's like, "Oh, I thought that's that's interesting, but I didn't know this was programming or like you know like a programming language." I thought it was like a game. And so I, I started learning home, then bring these, go to such and such, you know, stuff like that. It's like, I thought it was, it was pretty neat. I didn't realize it was programming until years later. So now I'm, I'm, I'm in the, in the U S and trying to, to get things uh, working out. And, and, uh, I was interested in, I started getting interested in Linux because, uh, uh, I, I had my, my laptop, it got, it, it got a virus and it destroyed most of my pictures. And I was like very annoyed. And I was keep, kept hearing this thing where there was like, oh, there's no viruses in Linux, uh, which is of course not entirely true, but, um, you know, 15, 20 years ago, I was like, oh, this sounds enticing enough. I'll just figure it out. And I'll just slap a, a CD and, and try to get Linux. I remember trying, uh, some version of Red Hat that came with like five or six CDs and nothing like my keyboard wasn't working. My mouse was not working. So it's just like, this is not okay. And uh, PC World Magazine had an article that year. I think it was 2004 or 2005. It came out with like the top 20 uh, things in technology that are pretty outstanding. And one of them was the Ubuntu uh, Linux distribution. And the article literally said, the most surprising thing is that the keyboard works and the mouse works and it's just pretty great. It's like, oh, I have to try this thing. And lo and behold, I tried it. It worked. So I started getting more and more interested, interested in that. And so that coming to the U.S. and struggling with uh, making ends meet, I started picking up books. I remember going to Barnes & Noble, which is a big uh, bookstore here in the U.S., and, and just like really being interested in learning more and more of these things and um, – and, and so I got more adept to learning and improving my skills. And uh, it all started when my wife was uh, working at a small media agency um, and they were, needed someone to do something. She heard something about a server and Linux and they needed someone and they couldn't find one. And she said, well, my husband can do this. And I raised my hand. I said, yes. And that's how, that's how my career started. And this is 2007. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Thank you very much for sharing that. There's a lot of threads we could, we could pull on <laughs> yeah. there. Um, yes. Uh, yeah. One, one thing I always like to uh, ask about is, um, what what did your uh, like a common question that comes up is the is the question of like what was your first computer which you've already you already told us about but how mm -hmm. did the computer come into your home because often the story I hear about that is that someone's parent had a job in um in you know tech or something like that or else it was a gift for the kids but it, it it's sort of it's really interesting to know because they for those listening who might be a little bit younger you know. It wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't the case that everybody had a computer at home. At, at, yeah, it, it was. It was uh, for sure. It was a privilege, uh, especially in a third world country like Peru. Especially in the in the nineteen eighties. Nineteen eighties in Peru was very rough. We had tons of terrorism. Uh, we weren't like it, 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 there was, it, things were really really rough. And one of the things was that imports were really restricted. Like if you wanted to buy a car. Like it doesn't matter if you had the money, like you had to wait like a period of like about six months to 
you know, have all sorts of paperwork and get your new car. It's just, and it's so extremely expensive. So extremely privileged. My uh, grandparents from my mother's side, my, my granddad, he had, a, he owned a uh, mine or a, a few mines and he had like a mining company who's, he was doing well. And uh, he had, I remember a computer room already. And again, in Peru, the circumstances really uh, uh, outstanding that he was able to have something like that. So there was, uh, there were computers in at home in 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 his place, and I think it kind of like came from that. And my older brother was interested, and we were going to a good high school uh, that uh, or a good school that had the, a computer program and had these computers. So my dad saw that that was like kind of like a thing, and and he could get one of these hand-me-downs from my granddad. And uh, that's how the first computer arrives. But uh, my dad was not a technologist at all, uh, and near one in my family. It was just me and my brother trying to figure stuff out. And uh, yeah, just very briefly, without asking you to tell us the whole history of Peru, um, uh, could you explain <laughs> maybe in just a couple of minutes why, why there was terrorism there at that time? Yeah, there were like uh, two or three uh, groups that were trying to instill their uh, ways of thinking, uh, based, uh, I, th I hope I'm trying to, I'm trying to get this, uh, correct, but, uh, uh, be lenient with me if I don't get all the facts, uh, super straight, but there's these, uh, uh, trains of thought coming from Maoism and Leninism. And these groups believe that the better good for the country, the, the better path forward was following these, uh, ideas or ideologies and because they weren't seeing traction um they started uh trying to make a point by uh making violence so they would blow things up um and and this was very sad and very very uh very hard on the country so things like uh you would lose lose power every other day because they would blow up the power towers they would just blow dynamite. My, my granddad who had the mines, he was also like in trouble sometimes because the terrorists would just go in and, and, uh, steal the TN, the, the dynamite, the TNT from his mines, um, death threats. Uh, it's just really hard. And, and even today you can see in Peru, like if you ever go to Lima, it, it doesn't happen anymore, but you, you can still see these blocks of concrete in front of, uh, police stations. And people are like, why, why do they have that? Because terrorism uh, back in the 80s, what they would do is they would uh, put a, a car in first gear full of uh, explosives and just drive it into the police station and blow it up. So this kind of like would prevent the car to just go all the way into the police station. I mean, pretty, pretty, uh, pretty rough. But uh, that's that's kind of roughly why why there was uh, this thing going on. And there were like two or three groups causing all of these uh, trouble. And uh, one thing I always like to ask people about when they, when they are, um, are from a country where I haven't interviewed someone from there before, um, what, I mean, pre-COVID, <laughs> what, was, what was life like in Peru? I mean, was there a tech sector there? Uh, I or think it's uh, starting to change. It's starting to change in Peru, uh, and I would say in Latin America uh, in general. It's still not as strong as I would prefer that to be. Uh, I think it's a slowly coming um, in 
in retrospect, I think Latin America is always like a few years behind of uh, the U.S. or other uh, advanced uh, technology uh, countries. Um, so you're 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 seeing you're now seeing uh, data centers start starting to like kind of kind of like be a thing, whereas like ten years ago it was like what what's a data center? Um, so stuff like that and. I, I, there's there's a lot of uh, good potential, but the ways of uh, getting people to be more knowledgeable on on technology and and pursuing even even if you say well there's no data centers and 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 the and college uh, college or universities are not providing what they need to grow uh, now they're the means like. Uh, to to acquire that knowledge and be proficient without having the state or your country providing these tools for you, but uh, so I think that's slowly trying to be in a thing, and 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 that's uh, my hope is that not only Peru but the rest of the countries also uh, pick up on that. Going back to your own story, um, so you developed this early interest in programming without knowing that it was programming, uh, but. Uh, at a certain point, you or the people around you realized that you were a very gifted athlete. How did you end up in uh, track and field? Uh, well, my my dad went to the Olympic Games, and he was uh, he, he was a, um, uh, he did track and field for many years. He actually lived here in the U.S. He went to college in the U.S. and went back. Decided to go back to Peru. Um, so sports was always in the family. My mom. Uh, she started as a swimmer. She actually at some point had the national record for the medley uh, with her sisters. Hmm. Uh, so, wow. so another, uh, yeah, um, another family coming with uh, strong sports uh, influences. And, and then she went on to be a discus thrower. And, uh, and that's how she met my dad. They went to a, uh, uh, I think it was a, it was a Bolivarian Games. Bolivarian Games is kind of like a mini Olympics from all the uh, Bolivarian countries, so mostly South America, and that's how they met. And um, but my dad never like people think that my dad kind of like forced me to do stuff. Like no, it was it was me. I said you know I really like this. I want to do it. I want to. I really want to do this seriously. I was kind of like doing it like on and off and on. It's like I, I really want to put all my chips in. I want to do this thing. What do I need to do to be like the best? And that's how I started. Yeah. I, uh, I, I never even remotely got close to the level uh, that, that you <laughs> in my own, own life. But I, one of the things I always really loved about track and field generally was the variety. So things like discus and javelin and, you know, running and jumping and things like that. Was there a particular reason you sort of focused in on high jumping? Um, yes, uh, a couple, uh, one of them, um, one of them is that I was excelling at that. Um, one of the, the ways of my, that my dad has, uh, of teaching was like, no, you, you're, you're first an athlete, then you are, you're narrowing down into, you know, high jump or hurdles or whatever. And actually I was, a. a pretty good hurdler. All, my dad had the national record. I almost got the national record and missed it. But, uh, but in any case, um, I was excelling at, at high jump was one of the events that, Oh, I'm doing pretty good. And it, it, 
it, it's nobles, you know, it's nobles. And it's like, oh, I'm really good. It's like, oh, I think I like this a little bit uh, more than the art stuff because I'm excelling at it. And it's like, if I put a little bit more effort, then I'm a little bit better. It's like, so it's just like one thing leads to another. And then suddenly you're like, no, oh, I'm really good. And uh, the other thing is that uh, it feels really spectacular. Like when you're <laughs> running and stepping on the, uh, on the, on the track and just flying over the air and you're like, Woo. it's like people are like, Whoa, <laughs> that's, uh, that's kind of nifty, you know? Um, and, uh, I, I, I like that. I, I really enjoy that. And, uh, I think you're the first person who's competed at the Olympics. You were being rather modest in your description of your performance, but that was, I mean, uh, uh, you know, I think, I don't know if I mentioned it yet, but you were, um, the first world junior champion in track and field for Peru. Uh, and, uh, you, um, uh, so which Olympics did you go to, I guess? That's my first question about that. I went to the 2004 Olympics. Those were in Athens. Oh, wow. Okay. And um, I guess if you could talk for a couple of minutes about what was that like? I mean, I think I think a lot of people, I, my understanding is that when you compete in a certain, you only sort of arrive a couple of days before and you kind of generally leave right after. So you kind of dip in and out of the athlete's village. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit like that. Um, and this is a, this is a little bit hard for me to to talk about. Um, and, and let me give you a little bit of context on why. For the longest time, I felt very uh, self conscious about my my sports uh, background, and it was so because when I came here, it was really hard on my family. My dad was actually trying to keep me in Peru. And he said, well, you're going to have it super hard out there, Alfredo, because nobody knows you. Here in Peru, everybody knows you. Like I was, I have like, I, I have it in, in the, uh, just recently put some front uh, front pages of the most important newspaper in Peru in, in, in the walls at home. That uh, So people knew me, knew who I was. I was getting the, in, uh, in front of the TV and radio stations and getting interviewed all the time. Uh, so it was, it was kind of like a big deal. But when I came to the, to the U.S., I felt great that nobody knew me and I was going to build a name uh, by myself. And I was going to start from scratch and I'm going to, and it's going to take me a lot of work, but I, I'm, I'm in it. I want to do this. And slowly but surely, yes, uh, people would recognize me because I was giving a presentation over here or talking about Python over there and kind of like that was, that was really great. So I always held back and I, was, I, w I would never advertise that um that i went to olympics or that i that i was uh, uh a world junior champion in high jump the first uh, uh world um the only world champion in track and field for peru and uh people people at work would find out later and they would just not believe it and it's like and they would come and ask me so i was very self-conscious i didn't, didn't want to come off as a show i didn't want to say hey by the way I went to the Olympic Games. So, or, by the way, I did this and I did that. Um, and my dad, it was just, my dad would be really upset about this. He's like, no, you have to say it. People in the U.S., people outside of Peru, like, it's just going to be, this thing is great. How come you're not saying it more? And it's like, uh, I don't know. And it took me a while. And it, it was recently, I think in the past two years, that I just recently put it on my LinkedIn profile, that I put it on, on my Twitter account, and, and just very recently. And, um, and you know, I'm I'm coming to terms to it, and I, I think uh, the reason why is that I finally feel like successful enough um, 
of course, this is just a, a road to, to becoming better and better. It, 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 by no means it, it, it signals that I've, I've made it, like I, I, but I feel successful enough. I feel good enough that I can say, oh, yes, uh, I'm writing books or um, I, I'm working as a software engineer and I'm presenting here. But I, I'm, I'm also coming from, from a background in track and field. And, and the reason that I now I, I also like to say it is because it, it exemplifies, it, it kind of like shows that I was determined to, to do something and I did it. Like it was, it was very hard. And, and because otherwise, how, how can you explain if you're like someone that really, really, you know, can own something and have like the responsibility and the ownership to just pull through and make something happen? You know, if you can say, well, I did these, but it, it wasn't the Olympic Games, you know, it, it was just 15 years of my life. I remember once I was getting interviewed and, and this lady said, oh, so how many months have you been training for, for the Olympics? It's like, well, it's like about 15 years. I don't know. What, what do you mean? Like, what, how many months? Like, it doesn't work that way. It's just all your life. Um, so, so that's, that's kind of like how I, how I feel about that. But I'm way more comfortable about it these days. And, uh, yeah, I'm really curious. So, so you were sort of like at the peak of things, uh, and did you, was there a moment when you're like, I'm going to stop competing and, and, you know, this isn't going to be such a big part of, you know, three times a day kind of part of my life anymore. And what was, what was, it was, it it was, uh, it was pretty hard. Um, and I actually, (laughs) you're, you're making uh, all the, all the best questions here. Um, I have, um, I was I was one of the only professional athletes, uh, track and field athletes in Peru. I mean, professional track and field athletes don't just happen in Peru. And but Bell South, uh, which was a phone company uh, back in the nineties, um, they were doing very well. They have operations in South America. They of course had operations in Peru. And then they decided, like, oh, there's this dude. He's doing pretty well. He's seems like a good guy, like a good image for a brand. We're going to sponsor him. And I was a sponsor with, uh, like there was a tennis player and a couple of, uh, uh, rally, uh, race car drivers. And I was like, Oh, this is great. And the contract was for like four or five years, I think. And, uh, and things ended pretty bad. Uh, I had uh, an exclusive uh, uh, or exclusivity uh, clause in my contract, meaning I couldn't I couldn't come come up with my 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 uh, uh, any other brand, any other competing brand. I couldn't be sponsored by by any other brand. So um, while I was competing in the Olympic Games, they I mean they were they were under financial strain and they they sold. They eventually sold out. Like here in the in the U.S., they sold to AT and T. I think. In South America, they sold to the Spanish uh, uh, Telco, which is uh, Telefonica. And so they were getting rid of stuff. And basically, they got rid of me. And they sent me a really rough uh, uh, four or uh, five-page uh, letter to the address of my parents' uh, house in Lima while I was in the Olympic Games. They were cutting me off. And uh, and my dad didn't tell me, of course, until the, the, the Olympics were, were done. And... The letter said, you know, uh, you've violated the terms of our agreement because there was a big uh, photograph of mine coming up, uh, jumping uh, in an event that had happened two weeks before the Olympic Games, which were the Ibero-American uh, championships in, in Spain. And uh, my, the number, my um, 
the the I think it's called bib. The the my my number on my on my t-shirt on my uh, shirt uh, had the uh, Vodafone because Vodafone was sponsoring the event. But th- this is something that is that is um, that is uh, very well stipulated in 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 uh, international. Uh, the International Track and Field Federation, which is athlete A being sponsored by a company like say Nike and going to an event that is sponsored by Adidas, like has to use Adidas. Like there's no other way. Otherwise, you, you don't compete. So I was I had to compete. So they just they grabbed a technicality and, and got rid of my contract. But I have these this letter printed out along with the picture and and my dad didn't like my dad like really struggled with that. He thought it was like super negative, but, but to me it was very negative and it signaled my, my decline and my, uh, my, the idea of like, I need to stop doing this and just trying to figure out what I'm going to do with my life. But for me, it was uh, uh, the lowest of the low in my career being let go by the company that had, you know, sponsor me, they believed in me. And then suddenly it's like, oh, well, when you, I actually had 20 something scholarships to come here to the US that I declined because in the, it was to compete in the NCAA and the NCAA regulations uh, consider you a professional, even if you get a hundred dollar a year sponsorship or a one-time $10, I, there's a dollar amount, but I think it's pretty ridiculous, either 50 or a hundred bucks, then you're considered a pro, you, you're, you're not allowed to compete on NCAA. So I, I told him, it's like, my future, like I'm betting on you guys just as you are betting on, on me. I'm I'm gonna uh, not going to go to the US, not going to, to the NCAA thing, and I'm gonna stay here in Peru. And uh, they decided to to uh, do this other thing. So these things I printed out represents to me a low in my life, but it also represents that being so low there that I could just reinvent who I was in, in my goals in life. And I wanted to, uh, be better. And, and, and I think, and I think I've, I've kind of like succeeded to some extent to, to, to do that, you know, like I'm no longer, Oh, this is the, the Olympian dude. No, it's just, Oh, this is the dude that, uh, that writes software and does this thing. That's the other thing, you know? So, and why did yeah. you choose to move to the thank you by the way for sharing all of that i really appreciate that and i'm sure our listeners will as well um why did you choose to move to the us uh well we had uh, uh my wife had family here and that made it made it easier and uh, uh in peru i we were struggling to my wife we couldn't find work she had graduated a year and a half or two years earlier and she was unable to find work we were living in my in-laws uh, house. We lived there for a year. Um, and we thought, well, you know, we, we need to make a decision either we stay here in Peru and we, we try, we stay there in Peru trying to look, me trying to look for another sponsorship. My dad kind of like tried to put all of his energies in trying to make that happen. Uh, I was burned out. I was, I was uh, working out pretty brutal hours and, um, I didn't see, I wasn't seeing the results anymore. And, uh, you know, I, I thought, I, I think I'm going to, I'm going to make it happen. But my dad would ask me, he was like, what do you think is going to happen in the U.S.? Like, well, I don't know. I'll figure it out. <laughs> I'll figure it out. Something, something like, I think I have this plan. I'll just do some personal training. I'll just be a coach and my wife will find some work and then we'll take it from there. And, you know, 
ended up uh, being kind of like that, but very different in the end. And uh, yeah, we were talking uh, a little bit before we started recording the interview, but um, uh, one thing that's now a feature of, I think, most podcasts uh, is uh, how is how is COVID-19 affected you professionally? And I guess I, specifically, what are things like in Atlanta right now? I mean, I know you're in the Atlanta region. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm just uh, a little bit up north of a Atlanta, but uh, <clears throat> you know, I I don't think it has changed much professionally for me. Like I I still uh, work my day to day stuff. I'm I'm working these days with uh, a company that does uh, security analysis of containers called Anchor. Um, but I've been working remotely for the past. Uh, eight years or so fully remote and 10 years almost uh, all the time remote so things doesn't uh, they don't seem so much different than before except for the fact that i don't have the occasional going out thing um i would say like the 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 state is doing uh, okay-ish. There are some controversial measures of opening and reopening the beaches or or, or reopening uh, businesses uh, early. So that's that's a little bit stressful, but um, the things are are okay. So professionally, the same. I'm nothing has. It's kind of like when we have a snow day, and my kids are like, "Oh, we we have the the day off because as soon as it snows, Atlanta shuts down," and it's like that, like. When you have the day off, it's like, uh, no, <laughs> that doesn't work that way for a remote uh, worker. You know, like it doesn't matter if there's snow uh, outside. <laughs> and uh, but uh, other than that, um, I'm uh, I'm sharing my home with uh, with my sister and brother-in-law and their family. They have uh, three kids and they're uh, they're staying with us. They they were caught almost in the middle of this in the transition in, in from. Uh, moving from one state to the other, and uh, so they're staying staying with us uh, these days. Which, uh, yeah, and like you said, we were talking about this uh, before we started, but the the it it makes the logistics of everything pretty pretty difficult. Going to buy groceries for ten people, which is very different than <laughs> than buying buying for one or, uh, or two people. And everyone, of course, these uh, my my nephews are are almost like almost almost all of them are teenagers, and they. Like there were like three people <laughs> in one. <laughs> yes, it's, so it's really interesting. Uh, one thing we were talking about before, but I was hoping you would you would uh, be willing to share in the interview uh, is um, that uh, people kind of think you're a hoarder when you go shopping. Yeah, uh, because yeah, they don't believe you when you say that you're you're managing ten people. And I'm sure that there are few, yeah. there are probably very few people listening to this who are in like a household with like ten people in it. But I'm sure we all had a similar experience where we've got some particular thing in our life that makes us a little bit different from other people and operating under new circumstances requires, you know, under, not just adaptation on our own part, but understanding from other people as well. Yeah. Um, that, that's a great point. Uh, judging others is, or judging other situations is just so easy. It's, it's, it's a, it's the low hanging fruit. Uh, it doesn't take much effort. You see something that doesn't quite uh, look okay, and then you immediately like draw your conclusions, and you say something, or you post something, or you tweet something, and it's there's always something a little bit beyond that, right? So yeah, we we go to the to the well, there's there's restrictions in the supermarkets on how much chicken you can buy, how much pork you can buy, and 
and you know it's like oh it's just one half a chicken for per family and you're like well but, but like it's it's we're, we're 10 people like it's me my wife my three kids and my sister-in-law my brother-in-law and their three kids and oh and we have two dogs like their two dogs are also here <laughs> so it's it's uh you, you're trying to you know get these things um uh working out but uh you know you, you you do you 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 try to cope with it and but we're lucky because it's family and we love each other and we're we're um, we're lucky that we we have each other to 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 uh, survive this thing together. Yeah, thank thanks again for sharing that. I'm glad to hear you're you're with your family and uh, you guys are are safe and and comfortable uh, and and managing things and that you're you know working from home means you're you're relatively protected from some of the things that are affecting all of us. Um, and so, uh, moving on to the next part of the interview, uh, I wanted to ask you about your work at, at Anchor. Um, uh, so you said, you know, security around containers, and I was wondering if we could talk a little bit. I'm sure you get this question from people who are sort of not in the computer world, uh, but uh, <laughs> if you could talk a little bit about like what containers are uh, and, yeah. and what Anchor does. Yeah. Well, um, the fu the funny thing is that I have it much easier than my previous job. I was uh, uh, I was doing uh, distributed storage for like about six or seven years, uh, working working with the team that uh, uh, created Ceph. Ceph is a distributed file storage system, and that's just very tricky to explain. <laughs> so when everybody when someone someone comes like, what do you what, what what is it that you do in technology? Do you do work with computers? Like well. How do, I, uh, how do I explain distributed storage? It's just so complicated. Uh, oh, you mean like the cloud? Well, yes, kind of like sort of. <laughs> just, but now it's uh, it's much easier. I just say not security. I just analyze what's going on there in the in, in a computer or or a server, and then we come up with like oh, this 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 thing has a security vulnerability here, and that thing is not safe. And here's a report, and you can take some actions. But um, yeah, so maybe you ask a, a couple of uh, um, uh, granular uh, questions there. So con containers are it's this uh, level level of abstraction. Back in the nineties, uh, you say, oh, I'm gonna run a website, so you have to like have your physical server plugged in this computer that looked like a like a like a big pancake and just stacked into a into a rack and uh, and 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 that rack would have other ginormous pancakes uh, with flashing lights and then you would just turn on your website and your website would be living there which is kind of like a, a computer and then we uh, technology progressed and we had the virtual server which is a thing that kind of like mimics that thing it's like that you can have. 10 or 20 or whatever number inside a living inside of a physical computer. So that was abstracted. And then the container is, is a step beyond that, I think, or at least that's the way I tried to explain it in, in easy terms, which is it's a very thin abstraction, which uh, uh, allows you to, to uh, virtualize um, applications and, and, and make them work. So we, we grab these uh, things, which are, compressed in uh, they call them images and then we uncompress them and analyze them and try to find what what might be wrong with them and and make a good report with it which i think is pretty cool and how do you analyze um so like so um uh, a container is kind of like the idea is that you should be able to um have all the things that make something work kind of in one in in a kind yeah. of in a, in a metaphorical software box um uh, but so you've got all these, but now you've got all these boxes 
Uh, and there can be something going on inside one box that's not going on inside another box. Uh, and so you guys, as I, like, I, I, I don't claim to understand exactly what you do, but, you know, this presents companies who are using containers with prob- with a security vulnerability, a particular kind of security vulnerability. And so what what you do is companies give you access to their software, and then you go in there and you look inside well, the container? Well, uh, y- y- yes, so... Uh, there's there's different various uh, uh, interactions that you can have. There's an open source version that uh, you can run. So the idea is that you will run this service uh, somewhere in your infrastructure, and then uh, and then when it's running, like it's it's basically on premise that you're running this, uh, you're installing this service in your within your system wherever that is. Like if you want to run it on Amazon, you could. Um, and, and what happens there is that you can analyze individual images and you can say, I've created this uh, image and I'm just going to push it here. And then you grant access to the container registry. So a registry, for those who might not know what it is, is uh, it's basically a collection, like the, the thing, the service that collects all of the images available. And that, that could be private or that could be Docker Hub, which is the public uh, registry that uh, most everyone uses for uh, Docker images. Um, so, so yeah, so, so to, to some extent, yes, um, you have to grant access to the service to analyze these, uh, these, uh, container images. Well, actually one thing I wanted to ask you, I should have actually included in, in this in the previous part of the interview, but in, in addition to your, your work, uh, that you do professionally, you, um, you've also been a, a speaker on a number of different things, as I mentioned in the introduction. And I was scrolling through your Twitter feed, uh, doing research for this interview. And I saw that you were supposed to be speaking at the PyCon Peru 2020, uh, conference in late March. Did that, did that actually happen? It, it didn't. Um, yeah, it didn't. And, uh, such a bummer, uh, and, and especially so because it's Peru, and my background and, and in sports and everything, uh, it was it felt to me kind of like my going back and and being a keynote speaker for a technology event was was opening up, uh, not not necessarily opening up uh, uh, opportunities for me, but kind of like make, making me feel like yes. Yeah, I'm getting you more recognition for for being someone else other than the the, the athlete that was uh, track and field, like a successful track and field athlete. Um, so yeah, that didn't happen. Ended up canceling, uh, just like uh, a bunch of uh, other uh, travel that I had planned. But um, I mean, I think I think it's for the best. Uh, but it's just a major, major bummer. Not not, not necessarily because of the keynote speaking, but Again, because it, it was Peru, I was really looking forward to that. And having the, um, having had the opportunity to be given the opportunity to go and talk uh, and keynote, I think is great. And I really enjoy uh, giving presentations. Um, I like it's one of the things that I really, really like. Uh, even even way before when I was in school, like I really like like standing in front of people and telling stories. I think it's great. Um, and uh, you know, very sad that that didn't happen. Hopefully, uh, we can make a bike in Peru happen again soon. Yeah, one of the I'm sorry to hear that one of the um, it's but this is the kind of thing that's been affecting a lot of people, and in particular, LeanPub authors um, are often people who give give conference talks. And in fact, they, you know, that acts for some of our authors that actually um, is a pretty important part of their income. 
if they're if they're paid to give presentations to companies and conferences and things like that and everybody's really kind of scrambling right now and and uh uncertain about the future and one thing i don't know if i've mentioned this on the podcast before but um o'reilly actually um just permanently canceled their conferences business their in-person conferences business um and this is a very they're they're pretty smart cookies over at o'reilly um and if they have made a decision like that they i it, that anyway to me that's been the most this is just kind of anecdotal but that's been the most ominous sign for me for for sort of conferences in this sector going forward yeah um, yeah I, I i heard a news as well uh i think it's uh yeah i, I think o'reilly does uh, wonderful events it's a major bummer all these uh, people being uh, let go um my hope is that the uh, you know, uh, a while ago, I, I, I was uh, I heard this interview, and 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 the interviewer was asking these questions about these 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 terrible times. But before even the the COVID uh, situation that we're living in, and this person answered in a, in a really uh, in a in a, in a way that I can really relate to, and and hopefully anyone that is listening to the podcast can can uh, feel good about this. And this person said, yes. We are living through uh, these uh, very complicated, uh, uh, very complicated times, and things are complicated. Things are difficult, but that that can only mean that when we're coming out, we will come better and stronger, and more aware of of what things were bad and how lucky we are that we're having our chance to make it better. So, to me, it it feels like. Uh, we're, we're, we're hunkering down, uh, down. We're, we're, we're in our, in our homes, not being able to have all of the freedoms. Uh, let's, let's appreciate more of that. Let's, let's put the extra effort in thinking about all of these other people that like, I mean, how, when, like, I don't, I don't remember when there was so much gratitude to these people in the front lines, just doing so much work, the caretakers and putting their lives at risk. And so many have lost their lives. Uh, trying to help others, and and I, I don't remember a time where where that was you know there was that awareness that level of awareness. Uh, so I think that's great, and I think that's that's uh, when we come out of that out of this problem, we we will be much better, and, and this tremendous opportunity to make things even better and be more um, less judgmental when it's so easy to do, and more. Um, more aware of things. Yeah, that's a that's a very great observation. Thank you for that. Um, uh, you're reminding me that um, a couple of weeks ago, here where I live on my street, uh, people started banging pots and shouting at 7 p.m. to celebrate the frontline workers. Um, wow, it's it's this really touching thing. Like Canadians don't typically do collective stuff like that. Um, <laughs> and and you know it's funny. Like I I work I work from home myself. I'm looking out at my street through these beautiful you know windows all day long, uh, and Every day at seven, there's this reminder. There are actually people in those houses, <laughs> uh, living their lives, uh, you know, doing things, and they all come out and uh, and celebrate what we're all, you know, the the people who are doing, taking the biggest risks to help the rest of us who are suffering the most right now. And that's that's a great thing, and it is a hopeful sign for maybe a, a changed approach to to life going forward. Um, moving on to the the next part of the interview, I'd like to talk to you about your books. And so, um, I guess the the first thing is uh, you've you've co co-authored them with uh, Noah Gift. 
um, who I actually interviewed last week. So that, that interview will be coming out on the podcast just before, before this one. Uh, but how did you, how did you and Noah become, uh, colleagues and co-authors? Uh, um, man, Noah, um, Noah has, um, um, changed my life more than once. And uh, he's been a tremendous uh, source of uh, positive influence in my life. Uh, he, he's, he's, a, he's an amazing human being. Um, I met him while I was a system administrator in a very small uh, media agency. My office was not an office. It was the server room. So I would put my chair right next to the rack of servers inside a very freezing room inside of the, the this uh, small uh, company. And uh, the company needed someone to uh, do something with Python. They were primarily doing PHP. And so Noah was contracting, like he was living in the, in the Atlanta area at that time and he got hired. So I was told like, hey, there's a new person coming in Said so I wasn't only the system administrator. I was also the IT guy. Uh, like printer was not working. You would call me like, uh, you need to go to the data center. Like that's me as well. Like a network cables. Yeah. You need to ask me every, every all of those things was me. So system administrator, um, uh, was, uh, taken with a grain of salt. So uh, I was seeing his computer up and, and then, um, uh, we, we started talking a little bit and, and then he, he really likes sports. He, he's very passionate about sports. So, uh, yeah, so I told him, I was like, yeah, so I, I, I did a little bit of sports. Like I said, like I wouldn't advertise any of my background things like, Oh yeah, really sick. You did sports. Like what kind of sports? Well, I did, you know, track and field. Oh, really? It's like, I, and Noah says, well, I also did track and field. It's like, Oh, that's great. And, and then he would say, well, so what, what, um, <laughs> what event you did in track and field? Afraid? I was like, well, I did the high jumps. I was like, oh, no, I, and Noah was like, I also did the high jumps. I was like, oh, and, and Noah was, uh, Noah did the, um, the gas line. So he was at the gas line. So of course he did the, the, the high jump. And he's like, oh yeah. So, I, so Noah was like, oh, I jumped these. And how much did you jump? I was like, well, um, I jumped, uh, I think it's seven, four, which is uh, 227 meters 27 centimeters which i think is seven four or close to uh, seven feet four inches and he's like whoa <laughs> wait a second <laughs> yeah, ball dropped there. that doesn't that doesn't sound yeah. uh quite right like what's going on he's like, so he pressed me and it's like yeah yeah i went to olympics he's like you went to the olympics what is going on like that's insane <laughs> so so we we uh became friends and we started working together and he he said hey you know like um uh, I think you really need to learn some Python. And I was like, well, <laughs> I, this is horrible to, to say, but like I said, well, I don't know. No, I, I know bash. I think I can, I can, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty proficient in this thing. I don't like, why would I need to learn Python? Show me how I run a command, a system command in Python. You know, like we're system ministries are always restarting servers and installing dependencies. And it's like, show me how I run a system command. So it's like, oh, you import this thing, you run this thing and pass it through a pipe. It's like, oh my goodness, this is terrible. <laughs> I can do this with one line in bash. Why would I ever do this in Python? It's like, oh, you don't understand. So he got me convinced. And, and then he said, choose one thing that you want to automate 
uh, out of like the, the, your day-to-day stuff and write it in Python. And then every Friday we'll sit down review it and we'll take it from there. And that's how I started learning. So he basically pushed me to learn Python. And then after a couple of weeks, I swear it was like two or three weeks learning Python. He said, okay, so you need an objective in your life. So you need to, uh, you need to present uh, the next PyCon in Atlanta which was 2010. So I learned in 2000, I started learning Python in 2009. It's like 2009, you need to, Python is in Atlanta, you need to present. It's like, how am I going to possibly present something that I just learned? Like, no way. So he said, no, you need to do it. You need an objective or you need to submit a presentation and proposal and and see what happens. And lo and behold, uh, I submitted a proposal and that was the only time that I was able to get accepted at uh, Python and uh, presented in, in 2010. So that's that's how I met him. And uh, that was back in 2010. And when did you guys decide to write books together? Uh, so so after um, being with Noah for, for a while here in Atlanta, he, he went off to New Zealand and then to San Francisco and then stayed in, 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 in California for, for a while. And, and then I moved around and and uh, kind of like lost contact with him for a little bit. I would just always try to every now and then try to give him a call and, and chat with him. But uh, we, we weren't in, in touch a lot. And what happened was that uh, one day he uh, we, we, we started talking about uh, things that we, we, we should be trying to do together. He was doing all of these training and he wanted to pull me in and, and try to, to do some stuff together. And I was like, well, yeah, I mean, I don't know. No, like, yeah, I mean that I'm more of like a hands-on person. I can't just like learn something and just, uh, start, uh, teaching it. And, and there was, uh, there was some talk about doing some cloud related stuff. He's very, very big on cloud, uh, cloud things. And, and then the year started like this is last year, last year. Can you imagine this? Like this last year started and it was like January. It's like, Alfredo, uh, how about we do this book with O'Reilly called uh, Python for DevOps? And I said, okay, yeah, let's do this. I like, let, don't, don't go too crazy uh, on me with the, with the topics, but yeah, I can, I have tons of DevOps experience. So I was like, I felt confident enough that at least a chunk of chapters could be mine. I could own them and, and be good. And, and we did, and then we later partnered with uh, two more authors, um, Kennedy Berman and uh, Greek Georgiou, amazing, amazing guys. And uh, we knocked that out in um, four, four or five months. We went full, full steam ahead, and, and that's, that's how it started. And so we finished, and the, the book was finally published uh, by Riley uh, in December. And January comes... I think it's January 2nd or 3rd. And then I, I talked to Noah and, sa- and I said, uh, no, you know what? Uh, I, I want to write another book and I, I don't want to stop. I think this is going well. And, um, and, and I've, I've heard this, this, uh, this thing called Limpub. It sounds really neat. It sounds more of like the stuff that, uh, that aligns more with the way the way I work or the way I would want to work with books because technology books they can get they can get so out of date so quickly uh, and even if they don't like they have a lifetime and then they die and they die like they, I mean what, what are you gonna do like a, a Python book from ten years ago is not that useful today 
even even if it is somewhat useful, it won't be as useful as some as someone writing a book with the most recent version of Python today. So it was enticing to me. Um, and I actually read the story uh, or one of the blog posts uh, of um, um, this uh, this guy that wrote the the uh, Ansible for DevOps Jeff, book Jeff, Jeff in Nimpa. Yeah. Yes, Gearling. Yeah. So I remember seeing his repositories for Ansible for a while. Uh, Gearling guy is his uh, <laughs> his his nick on GitHub, and and I remember reading that and I was like, well, I think I think this is great. And uh, writing for O'Reilly was 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 a great experience. So I, I loved it, but I wanted to kind of like go on on, on a different route. And I talked to Noah, and Noah said, "Yeah, oh my goodness, that sounds great. Yeah, okay, let's do it." And 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 we started. And while we were writing, the first book was testing in Python. While we were writing that, Noah liked it so much that we uh, brainstorm on two uh, two more books. And the other book was uh, Minimal Python, which we just finished. And then the R one is uh, command line command line tools in Python, and and so we've been cranking we've been cranking out a book every six weeks almost. And do you plan on continuing to write more? Um, so that's a that's a great question. I don't know it's, it's been a pretty brutal schedule uh, trying to crank out a book every six weeks. It's just been um, uh, it's. it's it's, it's been brutal. I, I don't have any other uh, way to put it. Uh, so I want to, I want to, uh, not necessarily stop writing books, but I want to continue to improve the books that we have and expand on the things surrounding the books as well. Uh, I, and, and again, like one of the things that I really like about Limpop is that we could ha have this uh, iterative approach on on writing and republishing and putting another version and another version. And, uh, and, and, and I, I think that's great, but I have my brother-in-law is with, with me. He's, he's more of like a, a, a manager, but has like a background in mechanical engineering and he's picked up minimal Python. It's like, Oh, well, it, he doesn't know Python. And it's like, he's picking up on it. And it's like, well, it would be really cool if you could expand on these or add on that or reword these. And, and I, I'm up for that. Like I, I, we haven't written these books to just say, Oh yeah, we did it. Checkbox done we're gonna do i don't know movies now <laughs> we really want to make these uh things great and and so we're thinking all these different ways that we can we can make that happen so yeah that's 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 a great story that um you know you guys are the canonical lean pub authors right you know we're writing about something that that can change so we want to have books that we can update and we're using our our readers as uh, resources for improving our books and guidance for for how we can make them better uh, and so that, yeah, that's just, that's just fantastic to hear. Um, the, uh, the last question I always like to ask people on this podcast, if they're LeanPub authors, um, is, uh, in your experience using LeanPub, if there was one thing we could, one feature we could build for you or one problem we could fix for you, uh, what would you ask us to do? For, for, for me as an author? Yeah. yeah you, uh, it can be yes. as personal and unique as you like. Um, yeah, uh, I do have one thing that is just really, really um, tricky. And um, whenever I need to make changes to my book, <clears throat> either uh, generate uh, a new version or generate a, a, a change some setting, I can never ever find the right menu or how to get to the menu that I need. And I so I have to go to this one URL that has the drop down 
and then I can just drill down. So some sort of reordering of the menus would be uh, would be greatly appreciated because I can never find my way around. Yeah, you can't. No one can see, but I'm I'm laughing because thank you very much for sharing that. Um, we are aware that we we introduced a new navigation system on the website a while ago, and we realized that it was not the right approach and we're redesigning the whole thing <laughs> right now. Um, uh, one thing I would say to any lean pub author is that if you're working on your book, you can go to like your book landing page and just go to slash overview. And then right. that shows you all the menu items on one page in categories, you know, like store where you can do coupons and make packages. So there is, there is a one page you can go to that. You should definitely bookmark for your book where you can get all <laughs> the links. Uh, but yeah, thank you Great. for sharing that where we, I mean, we really appreciate that kind of feedback and, and yeah, it, it, the navigation system is something that we're fixing that we're going to make hopefully way better and more clear. Um, we just basically, the, the short version of it is we got, we got a bit too clever and up our own ass, uh, instead of, instead of, <laughs> you know, thinking about things from the sort of like, what does a new user need to see? What does someone who's actually grinding away on a book like need to need to be able to get to quickly and easily? And yeah, right now there are a lot of things where like people are like, it's like I can't even even seasoned lean pub authors are like, I can't find, I can't find what I'm looking for, <laughs> uh, which is you know pretty but, embarrassing for us. So we're 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 working on a fix to that. That's a um, uh, that that's a great thing to to do, uh, then to ask about. I, I think um, as 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 people that produce a, a, a product and having some uh, looking forward to get some feedback, even if it's uh, not, not quite like positive. I, I think it's uh, I think it's great, but you asked me something that, that could be improved, but uh, I would like to add that so far we've, we we're in love with the whole platform. Uh, we're using GitHub actions to uh, talk to the API and auto generate our books. I think that's great not having to just go and click and everything. So having the API is, is, is fantastic. So uh, if there are other uh, authors uh, listening to the podcast and if they haven't used the API, uh, it's just great. It's, it's really nice. And using it on, uh, on GitHub with the GitHub Actions thing, it's just, it's just perfect. You just add the, the API token and, just, and everything gets, uh, gets, uh, gets, gets published. So that's, that's really nifty. So Noah and I were collaborating on GitHub. So... We're submitting our stuff, and when we merge our PRs to master, the new version of the book gets out, and it's perfect. Yeah, thanks. Thanks very much for the kind words. <laughs> we appreciate we appreciate that too. And yeah, our, our more sophisticated users really do like the the API, and then sort of coming up with their own workflows and working together with someone else um, uh, is you know comes with its own issues. But thankfully, we, we've got you know modes of writing like GitHub and Bitbucket and stuff like that, where there's this entire brilliant services that you know are built to help people work together creating texts. Um, which is what, you know, uh, some code is and what a book is. Uh, well, Alfredo, thank you very much uh, for taking the time to do this interview today. We really appreciate it. Uh, and thanks to you and Noah for uh, using LeanPub as a platform for your latest books. Yeah, absolutely. Um, again, we're tremendously passionate about producing good content. I think LeanPub is, is, a, is a great, great uh, place to 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 develop our and produce our content. And I think it's a, it's a great platform. Hopefully more, more authors realize that and, and start, start using it. And, um, I, I, I really want to thank you for all of your thoughtful questions and, and, and awesome interview. I, I really enjoyed my time uh, chatting with you. Thanks very much. 
And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter Podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a LeanPub author, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.